Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky was many things. A talented journalist, a poet, a playwright, a soldier, a politician, an intellectual, a liberal, a polyglot, and a Jew. Above all else, though, he was a Zionist. And in this, like the rest of a wandering life which spanned three continents and dozens of countries, he was brilliant, visionary, but often controversial. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we are conducting a series of interviews with well-known authors whose books cast light on key people and events in the history of Israel, Zionism, and of course, the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Makovsky, and I'm the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm excited to bring you these conversations with top-level scholars and policymakers about critical moments in Israel's history. Jabotinsky embodied the contradictions of being a Jew in a time of enormous upheaval in Europe. He was born on the shores of the Black Sea in 1880, in the relatively liberal and multi-ethnic city of Odessa, then part of Tsarist Russia, and now, as we know from the news, Ukraine. Odessa was the only place where Jews could live outside of the Pale of Settlement, a large swath of land covering present-day Poland, Belarus, and Western Russia, designated for Jewish living. The city was a rare alternative to the rural shtetls or villages which characterized Eastern European Jewry throughout the 1800s. Jabotinsky grew up like a Western European assimilated Jew, fluent in the currents and culture of liberal Europe. Yet he became the leading figure of revisionist Zionism, a territorially maximalist, the muscular version of Jewish nationalism, which drew the vast majority of its supporters from the very squalor and poverty he had been so repulsed by as a young man. Jabotinsky was a great literary and rhetorical talent. The father of the famed Russian novelist Vladimir Nabokov once remarked that Jabotinsky was the finest orator in Russia and that his many poems and novels, not to mention his countless translations, like Chaim Nachman Bialik's famed poem in the City of Slaughter, alone could have secured him a place in the pantheon of great Jewish writers. Other Russian literary figures claimed that his preoccupation with Zionism was a loss for Russian literature. Yet the majority of Jabotinsky's intellectual energy was expended on Zionism. Jabotinsky could be simultaneously maximalist and pragmatic, bringing him into conflict both with supporters and his far more numerous opponents in the Zionist movement. He maintained a relentless focus on the need for autonomous Jewish military strength and a Zionism free of socialism and fascism. But he was also a cultured liberal who refused to compromise in his quest to fashion a dignified and moral new Jew and rejected the violence, at least nominally, that his supporter carried out against the Arabs in the 1930s and 1940s. His famous 1923 essay, The Iron Wall, argued that the Jews had to defend themselves, and he called for the construction of a metaphorical iron wall between them and the Arabs. He felt premature concessions to Arabs would not bring peace until the Arabs accepted the right of Jews to live in Palestine. Until then, deterrence, an iron wall, so to speak, was needed until that moment came. 
But Jabotinsky did not call for the expulsion of Arabs from Palestine. And he accused mainstream Zionism for just assuming that the Arabs would not fight just as hard as the Jews would for their land and nation. He felt mainstream Zionism as articulated by the nascent Labor Party, which over time would be dominated by David Ben-Gurion, was too enamored by economic incentives. Jabotinsky saw that approach as an illusion. On one hand, Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky were bitter rivals. Ben-Gurion saw Jabotinsky as a demagogue and feared his militancy would lead to an unwinnable clash with the British mandatory power. On the other hand, the gaps between Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky were often not that wide. Ben-Gurion also feared a war with Arab states was inevitable, and he was skeptical that peace agreements with the Arabs would occur anytime soon because he saw the enmity of the Arabs towards the Jewish state was too deeply entrenched. Until the Arabs would accept Israel in the region, Israel's military strength would be its best deterrent. At the end of the day, Ben-Gurion had this true sense that he was the person on the ground. And he felt it was just too easy for Jab Batinsky to launch fiery speeches from the grandstands. Ben-Gurion's views on socialism would also mellow with the years, once he understood the requirements of a new state. Throughout his life, whether agitating for Britain to draft East End Jews in London and then fighting in the Mideast in World War I or subsequently forming Jewish defense forces in the mandated Palestine or commanding the Jewish militia, the Irgun from London, Jabotinsky remained adamant that Jews must acquire the ability to defend themselves. This, combined with his independent streak and other hardline positions, caused him to clash severely with other Zionist movements, both on the center and left. Jabotinsky remained far from the seats of Zionist power amid the emergence of the quasi-governmental Jewish agency during his life. His revisionists did poorly in many elections, and their fierce internal disagreement over and whether or not to participate in the World Zionist Organization all led to a schism that eventually saw Jabotinsky form his own rival, New Zionist Organization. Jabotinsky commanded the loyalty of tens if not hundreds of thousands of Jews. The majority were hailing from Central and Eastern Europe, and many became members of his Beitar Youth Organization. But the center of Zionist activity by the mid-1930s was in Palestine, which Jabotinsky had been banned from in 1930. Why? It was allegedly due to fiery remarks he made about the inevitability of Jewish and Arab conflict. Jabotinsky was on the outside, both organizationally and geographically. With the outbreak of World War II, the burning ground under the feet of European Jewry became a conflagration, and his support base in the bloodlands of Eastern Europe was destroyed. Jabotinsky died at a relatively young age due to a heart attack in New York in 1940. His wife, Anya, was stuck in London, and his son, Ari, was imprisoned for smuggling Jews into Palestine. Taken together, his grand dreams seemed to be unrealized. Yet, control of the revisionist movement passed to a young firebrand, Menachem Begin, one of the leaders of Polish Beitar. Begin would go on to become the prime minister of Israel. 
and a young personal assistant of Jabotinsky was named Benzion Netanyahu, and it would be his son, Benjamin Netanyahu, that would also go on to be Prime Minister of Israel. Between Begin and Netanyahu, they dominated Israeli political life for decades. So what are we to make of the man who was both an artist and politician who dedicated his life to Zionism, yet spent little of it in the promised land, who was a liberal yet a muscular nationalist, practical yet deeply idealistic, who yearned to lead the Zionist movement but remained relegated to the outside his entire life, and whose ideas eventually, though, did become important in Zionist thought. I'm delighted to speak with someone who has written a splendid biography of Jabotinsky, Hillel Halkin. His book is called Jabotinsky, A Life. Hillel has translated dozens of books, celebrated authors such as Aleph Ben Yoshua, Shmuel Agnon, and Uri Orlev into English, and has written several novels, biographies, and narratives on subjects as diverse as the fate of lost tribes of Israel, the American-Israel relationship, and the life of the great Jewish poet-philosopher Yehuda Halevi. He writes in many publications about Jewish life, about language, and about Israel. Excuse the sound quality. He recorded it in his home office in Jerusalem. Hello, Halkin. Thank you very much for joining us here today to discuss your biography of Jabotinsky in order to better understand his life, his thought, and his legacy. Thank you very much, Hillel. My pleasure to be here, David. So, Vladimir Jabotinsky was a very cultured person. He spent much of his life, early life, traveling in Europe, in Russia, Italy, Poland, Germany, France, Britain, and more. But his Zionist politics appealed more deeply to a hard scrabble Eastern European Jewry. But give us a sense of the person. How did he transform himself from growing up in Odessa in a traditional family to the leader of revisionist Zionism? What were the developments that shaped him and led him along this trajectory? Well, Jabotinsky, as you say, grew up in Odessa, which was a very unusual city for Russia in those days. We're talking about the late 19th century. He was born in 1880 because it was the only city in Russia where really Jews more or less could live as equals and be treated as equals and participate in civic life as equals. So Jabotinsky had this Odessan background, which in many ways distinguished him from other Eastern European Zionists of his time. And what he also had, I think, as opposed to most other Eastern European Jewish Zionists, men like Ben-Gurion, for instance, was he really had the option of two selves. He had a Jewish self, and it was a very strong self, but he had a non-Jewish self, too, because he did grow up in Odessa, and he grew up in a very Russian environment in Odessa. He went to Russian schools. I think in that sense, of all the... Zionist leaders and the Jewish leaders of his generation, he's the one in, in some ways that a modern contemporary young Jewish person can most identify with, because his upbringing was most like that of a young Jew in New York or Chicago or London or Buenos Aires today. You ask what brought him to Zionism, he didn't entirely have to be brought. As I mentioned in my book about him, Jabotinsky lived almost around the corner from the offices of what was known as the Odessa Committee, which was a Zionist organization that was involved in helping Jews to travel to, to Palestine 
and live and adjust to Palestine. Odessa was the center of this because Odessa was the main port from which Russian and Eastern European Jewry left to Palestine. He knew what Zionism was from the time he was a child. And he imbibed it also to a certain extent from his mother and his mother's environment. But it's still, he was not very involved with Zionism until the 1903 Odessa pogroms, which happened when he himself was in his early 20s. That was the first real bad 20th century pogrom to hit Russia. And Jabotinsky, who was a young journalist at the time, in some ways because he had his ear to the ground as a journalist, saw this pogrom coming, saw the agitation, the anti-Jewish agitation growing in the Russia of the time and was instrumental in helping to organize a Jewish self-defense organization, which was calculated to fight against the pogrom. This was really his first introduction to a Jewish organizational life, the militant Jewish organizational life, and also to Zionism, because the self-defense organization was also a Zionist. So, so it really begins with the pogrom of 1903, which in the end skipped over Odessa largely, and the place that was worst hit was a city called Kishinev, which is about an hour's drive away from Odessa, and that really bore the brunt of the pogrom, and dozens of people were killed there. And that pogrom was so incredibly important in terms of Herzl's thinking about the Uganda plan that comes up at the Zionist Congress, where Jabotinsky attended, but also Jabotinsky is kind of launched into, I don't know if you want to say Zionist stardom, but by his translation, right, of Bialik's poem about the victims of the pogrom. And he was someone who was very literary, like yourself, also having, you know, grown up elsewhere, you said how you identify with him. But it was his ability to take Bialik's Hebrew, turn it into Russian, and that had a huge impact on how people started to notice Jabotinsky. Am I right? You're not entirely right, David, because Jabotinsky was a very well-known journalist in Russia before that. Jabotinsky wrote a bi-weekly newspaper column, or Feuilleton, as it was called, a leading Odessa daily newspaper, and, and it was very, very popular, his column. And he was very well known for that. But that was more his being known in the general world. I mean, it wasn't a specifically Jewish newspaper, a specifically Jewish column. So you're right that his translation of Bialik's poem in the City of Slaughter, which was written about Kishinev, did really make his name particularly known among, among Jewish readers. But he was a well-known figure in any case. It's just so interesting about how these early Zionists started as journalist Herzl, Jabotinsky, and they started in one trajectory and then they seemed to move over, that they were both impacted. I mean, we, we had Shlomo Avineri on recently and he was talking about how, well, the Dreyfus affair was not crucial, but because it, it was really an evolution. And I'm just curious if you think with Jabotinsky, the Odessa pogrom, the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, that this was more of a jolt, or it was just the latest that they would have gotten in this direction anyway. I mean, I guess it's hard to look at hypothetical history, but I'm just curious how much you feel that pogrom changed his course. It was a jolt in the sense that I think after the 1903 pogrom, Jabotinsky felt very strongly that the Jews had no future in Russia. It wasn't just the pogrom itself, it was everything around the pogrom. There was the government's tacit, if not participation, at least uh, permission for the pogrom to take place. 
It was the general mood in the Russian public, which was not particularly shocked or upset by the pogrom. And in some ways, many parts of Russia were glad to see it take place and justified it. I think this did give Javotinsky a great joke. And as I said, he, he wrote a play about it afterwards called In a Strange Land, in which one of the characters really speaks about you know, giving up on Russia at that point. And Jabotinsky, who had always been a great lover of Russia and of Russian literature, and this was his Odessan heritage, I think really turned his back on Russia at that point, or felt that Russia had turned its back on him. So that's certainly very true. And is it Nabokov's father who said that if Jabotinsky would have stayed in Russia, he would have been one of the great orators? Is that correct? Well, yes, uh, Jabotinsky was an enormously uh, popular and powerful orator, particularly when he was young. What made him so good, in your view? Well, as I point out in my book, it's a little hard to tell because the only actual film of Jabotinsky as a speaker come from a later period. They come from the 1930s, when his speaking style was much more restrained, much less flamboyant. But even then, what you get from Jabotinsky as a speaker in the 1930s is an orator who had an absolute command of his material, of what he wanted to say, of what, how he wanted to say it, who read nothing. He could speak for an hour or two without ever looking at a printed page. Everything was organized in his head. And he gives one the sense of a speaker with a great respect for his audience. He never talks down to his audience. He's always speaking at your level. He's always assuming that you're as intelligent as he is, which is what anyone in an audience likes to hear. When he was younger, as I say, I think he was a much more fiery speaker by the descriptions of him that exist. But besides being a wonderful orator, he was a great writer. Jabotinsky wrote wonderful short stories in Russian, marvelous poems, and two really great novels, one called Samson, one called The Five, which really, I think, among the great product of 20th century Russian literature. He was an extremely gifted person, which makes his choice of politics, I think, in some ways even more extraordinary, because he gave up a lot for politics. There are some people, if you think of Ben-Gurion, for instance, it's hard to think of Ben-Gurion apart from politics. What would he have been if he had not been a politician? Perhaps a high school history teacher. But Jabotinsky would have been, I mean, was a great novelist, a great writer, and would have been much more of one because he would have devoted much more of his time to it if he had not gone into politics. And he really did it out of a sense of duty and service. And his life is really the life of a politician who did not really want to be a politician. I'm curious to know, like, his mentors, who influenced him? And we're going to be talking about his particular brand of Zionism and his, you know, his famous essay of 1923, The Iron Wall, and his belief in deterrence, a belief, you know, that the Arabs haven't really accepted the Jews to have their own homeland, to be have their own self-determination. Who did he look to intellectually as his gurus? Yeah, Patinsky was a very individualistic person. And I think that there was only one man in his life whom he really looked up to greatly, in some ways even hero-worshipped, and that was Herzl. Herzl was always, for Jabotinsky, the model of what Zionism was and should be about. Jabotinsky very much thought of himself within the Zionist movement as Herzl's heir, as opposed to others who he thought were distorting Herzl's Zionism. 
And Herzl Jabotinsky was a man of grand vision, a person who was able to rise above the details to really see the whole and, and to see it in its entirety. And when Jabotinsky founds a political party in the 1920s and calls it the Revisionist Zionist Party, which in some ways is a clumsy name for a political party, but he really meant returning to Herzl, returning to Herzl's vision, revisioning what Herzl had already done. That's very interesting that he really saw Herzl as his model. I mean, in 1903, he wasn't enamored with Herzl. You, you would think he's younger, he's more impressionable. But you say he saw Herzl as the model he wanted to emulate. Yeah, Jabotinsky attended the 1903 Zionist Congress as a journalist. And that was the Congress at which the Uganda issue came up and was bitterly fought. Herzl wanted to consider, but he wasn't committed to it, but to consider a Jewish state in Uganda because of the British offer of that territory. Most of the Eastern European Zionists were bitterly opposed because it wasn't Palestine, it wasn't the land of Israel. And Jabotinsky was there and witnessed the whole debate and really sided more with Jabotinsky's opponents, but he was enormously impressed by Jabotinsky as a person. Jabotinsky's presence. And throughout his life, Jabotinsky felt that Herzl always had the clear target of a Jewish state, that nothing else would do, nothing else could substitute for it. And Jabotinsky felt that much of Zionism after Herzl kept drifting away from this target, was willing to settle for lesser things, for a large Jewish community in Palestine, for a Hebrew-speaking autonomy in Palestine, for whatever seemed to be something that the others, the British or the Arabs, would accommodate themselves to. And Jabotinsky always felt that this was a betrayal of Herzl. And Herzl was all about a Jewish state and that anything less would not have satisfied Herzl. And that Jabotinsky was in Herzl's tradition by demanding no less. Even though, Hillel, I think you quote this about, there's that famous quote of Jabotinsky saying, because on one hand, he's monofocus, and the word monism, you know, that he was just, it was all about the state. But he said, you know, any kind of state, you know, he said that I think at one point, even if it's an orthodox state, and I would have to eat gefilte fish all day, you know, of course, if there's no other choice. But you associate Herzl very much with the liberal values, the European liberal values that he saw this as integral. But it seemed that with Jabotinsky, everything was it was monofocus. It was get me that state, whatever values it takes, but get me that state. Once we have the state, well, we could deal with this. Right. You have to keep in mind that Jabotinsky here is confronting two other major schools or camps of Zionism. One is the Zionist left, which was led by Ben-Gurion for most of this period, which stressed the need for a socialist Jewish Palestine almost as much as the need for a Jewish state. The left saw Zionism not only as a means to a state, but as a means to reconstructing Jewish society and building it on an almost utopian basis, socialist basis. So that was on one side of Jabotinsky. On the other side, he has religious Zionists, which also thought of Zionism as something worth pursuing only if it had religious content and in some ways took on a religious form. And Jabotinsky's position was no to both of these camps. I mean, Jabotinsky said over and over, it doesn't matter. A Jewish state, once we establish it, it will take its own form, it will find its own substance, it will find its own content. It's not our job to dictate what that content should be or can be. It's our job to create the state. 
and not to get bogged down in side issues or to put other values before that of the creation of the state. And that's what he meant by monism, Zionist monism, really. That there's one goal only, and that is a Jewish state. And when he created this revisionist movement in the 20s, he felt it was sidetracked on these other objectives, socialism or religious Zionism. But he was also a believer that the mainstream labor Zionism totally underestimated Arab nationalism, that they thought, oh, well, we could find economic incentives to make sure there's some sort of political accommodation. And his his essay on the Iron Wall was, you can't, this nationalism is a fierce force, and you're not going to buy anybody, and Israel's going to have to have like a metaphorical Iron Wall until the Arabs understand that this Jewish state is here to stay. Is that right? Right. Jabotinsky thought the Zionist left was making two great mistakes, possibly fatal mistakes. The first, just to revert for a moment, the economics that we were talking about previously, Jabotinsky thought that by insisting on a socialist development for the Zionist Yishuv in Palestine and not letting it develop in terms of free enterprise, the left was holding up and slowing down the development of the Jewish community, was turning away hundreds of thousands of Jews who would have come but couldn't find a place in the socialist economy and, and would have found a place in a free enterprise economy. The second point, and this now addresses what you have just said, Jabotinsky from the very beginning, at a very early stage of his life, was convinced that a Jewish state could only in the end be established by force. Not because he particularly uh, was in favor of force, but because he simply felt that the left was totally unrealistic. It was unrealistic, as you said, David, and its appraisal of the Arabs. And Jabotinsky felt that the left, although it pretended to care more about the Arabs of Palestine than the right, actually had a certain contempt for them that the right didn't. Because Jabotinsky said, look, you love this country, you'll fight for it. The Arabs love it, and it's their country, and it's their land, and they'll fight for it too. And if you don't understand that they're going to fight for it, you don't understand them, and you really are undervaluing them, and you're thinking less of them than you think of yourself. The Arabs will fight. The closer we get to the realization of a Jewish state, the harder they're going to fight, because they're going to feel more and more threatened by it. So that the only realistic thing is to build up Jewish force, to build up Jewish military might, even though it has to be done clandestinely because we're living under the British and the British mandate. Eventually, this is going to be a war, it's going to be a war between us and the Arabs. And we have to prepare for it as, as quickly as possible. And Jabotinsky was already saying that in the 1920s, you know, 25 years before the 1948 war. Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky, they seem, you know, the two leaders of their respective camps. In the 30s, they both saw a rising Hitler. They both feared the consequences of a looming world war. Ben-Gurion famously said in 34, there'll be a world war in five years. The ground is burning. Jabotinsky also spoke about that moment about the rise of Hitler. And they both were competing in Eastern Europe for the hearts and minds of people. Even though Ben-Gurion was based in Israel, Jabotinsky by this time was already banned 
from Palestine, the land of Israel, after the 1929 riots, as the British blamed Beitar, the youth movement, or some members of the revisionists. But on one hand, they see the same threats, and they both wanted a state deeply. So, but there was a moment in London that they were closeted together, and they seemed to click in a way that maybe this, there could be a reconciliation between these two movements. And maybe it doesn't materialize. And you could say, well, look, because the supporters always tear the leaders apart. But tell us about that moment and what led to that. Where did they crystallize and why didn't it work? Well, it was a series of moments that took place in London in 1934, when Ben Gurion and Jabotinsky met over a period of a week or two at least, perhaps slightly more even, intermittently. It was in the apartment of a Zionist leader called Pinchas Rutenberg, and who offered his London apartment to them, and they made use of it. By the way, Rutenberg's home was also the scene, right, of Golda Meir meeting with King Abdullah of Jordan in the first of their two meetings in the 40s. He was a big figure, right, the head of the electric company. He was the big player in Zionism. Very flamboyant character, but, but in any case, Jabotinsky requested this meeting, the series of meetings. The issue of the Palestinian Jewish community by the mid-30s was very close to the civil war. The animosity between the, the right, led by the revisionists, and the left, led by Mapai Ben-Gurion's party, had reached really ferocious heights. There were constant street battles and violence between the two parties. And Jabotinsky, I think, partly because he realized the the revisionists were not going to win this struggle, but partly because he really wanted to work out a, a some kind of modus vivendi. He suggested to Ben-Gurion that they meet in London and then at Rutenberg's apartment, and Ben-Gurion accepted it. They knew each other before, they had met before, but this was the first time they were really intimately exposed to each other for a long period of time. And what you get from both of their accounts of it is a meetings at which there is great mutual respect, at which an initial suspiciousness or hostility between them very quickly turns into a kind of friendship, and, or at least a mutual admiration and a mutual esteem. And they exchange letters about it afterwards, and in which you can see that they felt very close to each other. And I think partly what each felt was the other was the only equal he had in the whole Zionist world. I think Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky both saw in each other men of a stature and a scope and an, an ability of leadership and an ability to see things that nobody else had. So they felt very close to each other in a way. And they came very close to an agreement. They actually did in those weeks work out a tentative agreement that then had to be put to the membership of the two parties. The revisionists had a referendum and approved the agreement. Mapai then had a referendum and voted it down by, I think, something like 60% to 40%. And it really foundered on that basis. And the two men drifted apart again because the old acrimony and the old bitterness between the two factions came back again. And was the acrimony focused more on the differences between socialism and not, or between how accommodating to be on the Arab issue at that time, it's hard for people to understand, like, 
Why would they be on the brink of a civil war in the 1930s when they both seemed to have a common enemy, which was to get as many Jews out of Germany and, and Europe as possible before this looming war? Well, look, they, they were operating within the confines of the British mandate. But within the framework of the British mandate in Palestine, Ben-Gurion and Mapai by the early 1930s really had achieved a kind of hegemony and were ruling the Jewish community of the country. They were ruling it on a socialist basis, which meant that they were controlling the economy, which left many, many people out. They were also controlling immigration to Palestine because the British gave annual quotas of immigration. And the, the socialist parties largely controlled who got the certificates of immigration and who didn't. And they, they tilted this in their favor so that Jews who were desperate to get out of Europe and come to Palestine had a far better chance of doing so if they were in the, in the left socialist camp than in the right revisionist camp. So both on economic matters, on immigration matters, on matters of added policy toward the British themselves, because as the 30s progressed and the great Arab revolt of 1936 broke out, the revisionists were for a much more militant stand and all these issues led to simply daily clashes between the two groups because uh, many of these issues were fought out in the streets. They were fought out in public marches and parades and, and assemblies. And there was just constant friction and clashes going on. Probably the most famous protege of Jabotinsky was Menachem Begin, who headed the revisionist youth movement in Poland in the late 30s called Beitar. But it seemed that there was a clash in the 30s. It was, I don't know, 1938. Begin fought at their Beitar conference in Poland. You might need force used against the mandatory power of Britain, who didn't want to allow Jews in. And remember, 1938 is the eve of World War II, and, and we saw the tragic results. Jabotinsky tries to negotiate even with the Polish foreign minister and others to get Jews out, but they couldn't get Britain to let them in. But it seems that Jabotinsky thought that Begin, maybe he thought that he wasn't ripe enough. Uh, Begin is only 24 years old. And I think he said it's like a, a creaking door. Some of these comments about what do you want to do? You want to fight Britain? And, and then he talks about liberating the lands of Israel. And Jabotinsky was much more of a secularist. I mean, we assume people on the right today in Israel are more driven often, not exclusively so, but somewhat by religious calculations. But this doesn't seem to be the case with Jabotinsky. So I guess taken together, could you assess Jabotinsky's relationship with Menachem Begin and, and his relationship with Judaism, which is carries on right with his son, Ari Jabotinsky, and Begin seeing the role of the state is in very different terms. Well, to start with Begin and Jabotinsky, I think it's somewhat of an exaggeration to speak of Begin as Jabotinsky's foremost disciple or heir in the making already when he was in Poland. Begin might have thought of himself this way, but I don't think Jabotinsky did. I don't think Jabotinsky considered Begin to be nearly as important as Begin himself thought he was. Jabotinsky appreciated Begin. He, he wasn't against Begin, but he wasn't entranced by Begin. He wasn't entranced by Begin's personality or style of leadership. And as you said, David, in, um, when Jabotinsky attended a, a Beitar conference, I think in, it may have been in Warsaw, but I'm not sure, in 1938, where Begin 
got up and severely criticized him for not being militant enough against the British and for not really considering the possibility of an all-out military campaign against the British to take Palestine from them and open the gates of Palestine to the hundreds and thousands of millions of Jews who were clamoring to get out of Eastern Europe by then. But Jabotinsky, this was something both of a shock and an annoyance, but Jabotinsky had really been adulated in the revisionist movement and was not used to criticism from within it. And when Begin got up and spoke against him in this very sharp way, I think Jabotinsky was really taken aback by, by just being publicly attacked in this fashion. Suddenly he, who had always been the militant vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the Zionist world, was accused by Begin of a lack of militancy. It was a, a blow to him. But beyond that, in 1938, when Begin suggested this, it really seemed madness to Jabotinsky, and it, it seemed unnecessary because Jabotinsky still not only thought it was insane to think that military force could wrench Palestine away from British hands, but he also thought there were many other alternatives still open to the Zionist movement, both in terms of appealing to Britain itself and to appealing, as you said, to other European countries. Jabotinsky was at the time negotiating with the Poles, he was negotiating with the Romanians. The interesting thing here is that a year later, right on the verge of the Second World War, a month or two before, when the situation was even more dire, and when Hitler was already on the poise to, to invade Eastern Europe, Jabotinsky actually came around to Begin's way of thinking. In, in uh, the summer of 1939, Jabotinsky actually ordered the Irgun, which was the revision, the military wing of the Revisionist Party, to prepare for a open revolt against the British in Palestine. Many of the Egon's leaders thought this too was crazy. But Jabotinsky at that point had reached such a uh, stage of despair in terms of the Jews of Eastern Europe and their situation that he was ready at that point to, to try what Begin had suggested a year earlier. What happened though was that the World War II broke out a month or two later before any decisions could be taken on this. And at that point, the whole idea became totally impractical because Jabotinsky's idea had been to stage a revolt and then try to grab temporary control of Palestine from the British and start bringing shiploads and shiploads of Jews from Eastern Europe and landing them on Palestinian shores. It was a pipe dream, I think, even before the war broke out, but it was clearly totally impossible once the war did break out. And Jabotinsky himself died not long after. Can you give us a sense about the debate about Jabotinsky's legacy today and how people interpret Jabotinsky versus the reality? You as his biographer, are you sometimes amused by people who say, this is what Jabotinsky meant? And if you can relate to the issue of, of how Judaism figures in, because, right, am I right? He was not viewed as someone who was driven by religion the way you would think of people on the right today, at least some. Jabotinsky was not driven by religion, but there is an evolution in his thought and in his politics that takes place over a long period from the time when he was really an avowed secularist, which let's say is the Jabotinsky of the 1920s, towards a later period, which you already see in the earlier middle 30s, where his attitude towards religion changes. It changes, I think, both for political and even opportunistic reasons, because Jabotinsky at some point realizes that he needs an ally against the left and that his natural ally is the religious right. 
because the, the Zionist right itself is also anti-socialist on the whole, with some minor exceptions. It was also much more militant in its attitude towards Palestine and its attitude that all of Palestine has to be ours, all of the land of Israel, we cannot compromise on this. So Jabotinsky saw in the religious parties a natural ally, and he wanted to reach out to them. But at the same time, I think his own thinking begins to change, not in terms of his own personal beliefs. It's not that Jabotinsky becomes a believing Jew at any point. But what does happen is he begins to have a greater appreciation for the role of religion in public life and in Jewish life. And he somewhat almost reluctantly comes around to the opinion that although individuals like himself may not need religion to give them the, the moral guidance or discipline that they need in life, this is not true of the great mass of people, that without some kind of religious guidance, most people will simply lose their moral bearing. So he begins really to think that religion may not be for me, but it's necessary for the Jews, and it's necessary for Jewish state. And it's also necessary, as I say, politically. And these, these things get somewhat confused, I think, in Jabotinsky's mind. What is political opportunism and what really is long-term uh, social thinking? As the 30s progress, he does position himself closer and closer to uh, Orthodox Jewry. He never adopts an Orthodox lifestyle himself, but he does begin to speak of the need for religious institutions in the Jewish state, of the need for some kind of formal religious definition of a Jewish state. He even, I mean, it's quite shocking today when you think of it, that Jabotinsky writes an essay in 1938, published in Yiddish in a Polish-Jewish newspaper, in which he entertains the possibility of barring smoking in public on tel in Tel Aviv on, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, because it's, this is offensive to religious sensibilities. This isn't the Jabotinsky that most of us think of today when we think of Jabotinsky, but it's, it's Jabotinsky as he was developing in the last years of his life. So in the last chapter of your book, because we have this situation, Jabotinsky dies an untimely death in 1940, relatively young, and he doesn't live to see the state of 1948. And you write in there about what would Jabotinsky think today? And, you know, we, we know all the limitations of, of that exercise. It's something we, we will never really know. But you write something like, if he was alive today, he would say, and when it comes to the territory, I think you said something like, do the best that you can. But he would not have been as ideological, maybe, as maybe some of the Likud are today. So, can you just tell us some more about what do you think Jabotinsky would think of the Likud today? I think he would have great contempt for the Likud today and for its leader. Jabotinsky, as you said, David, was a genuine liberal. He was a genuine believer in parliamentary democracy. He was a genuine believer in a tolerant society in which people listened to each other and respected each other. And I think he would find the Likud today very distasteful. He would find it, and this may seem strange to say of Jabotinsky, he would find it hyper-nationalist. Because you see, Jabotinsky, although he himself was a very fiery nationalist, had other values. He, he was a humanist. He, he was a man of culture. He was a man of literature. He was a man of ideas. And, and all these things were important. And he would find in the Likud today, I think, a very 
provincial, narrow-minded party of nationalist zealots who really have read out from their own ranks all the... There they, they were Jabotinskians in the Likud until not too long ago. One by one, they've been eliminated. Either they quit from, out of disgust, or they've simply grown old and, and passed away, or at least one case, that of Ruben Rivlin, they've been promoted to be president of Israel, which is what happened with Rivlin. But the, the Jabotinskians, the genuine Jabotinskians who existed in the party, like Moshe Arendt, like Rivlin, like Benny Begin, Begin's own son, like Begin himself, they're all gone today. There's nothing of that left. The, the Jabotinskian heritage is really gone from the Likud. Jabotinsky, uh, you know, at every Likud convention, there's a big photograph of Jabotinsky behind, behind the stage. And to me, he looks sadder and sadder in those photographs every year, although it's the same photograph. The irony, of course, for our listeners is that at the end of his life, right, Jabotinsky's personal secretary becomes Benzion Netanyahu, who goes on to be a very famous historian and the father of the current leader of the Likud, and which sees itself as the successor to Chirud and to Jabotinsky. So it's just interesting how history plays out. Right. As you say, Jabotinsky spent the last year of his life in New York, where he was desperately trying to gather support, both for U.S. government support and uh, Jewish organizational support for a Jewish army that would fight in World War II. That was his great dream. Never, of course, came to fruition, and he died in New York. And as you say, Ben Sion Netanyahu, Netanyahu, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's father, was one of a group of young men who was clustered around him. Well, Hillel Halkin, who in his own right is a man of letters, person who's written many books, translated others, really in a certain way, I think, is really one of Israel's really eminent thinkers. And I just really want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today on Decision Points. Thank you. You're very welcome, David. I was glad to be here. It's a delight. And I urge people to read Hillel Halkin's book about Vladimir Jabotinsky. There's really no book like it. If you want a one-volume sense of this figure who led his own brand of Zionism, I would urge people to read it. So thank you. Thank you very much. We just heard from Hill Halkin, who really had some really fascinating insights, uh, a kind of wide-ranging view about his subject of his biography, Jabotinsky. It was really clear that this was someone who saw the power of Arab nationalism. This was an ideology that could not be denied or, or mitigated through economic incentives or political measures. And he felt that his opponents in the mainstream tended to underestimate its power. He was someone who, given what Hillel has said, someone who might not recognize revisionism today. People have invoked Jabotinsky as if he was a believer in the inviability of of territorial concessions based on biblical patrimony. In fact, the Jabotinsky that Hillel Halkin describes was more pragmatic And he was not someone who reflexively believed that force was the answer. He thought that Menachem Begin was wrong in believing that the Irgun, the revisionist force on the ground, could use force against the British and was more judicious than he was portrayed by his critics, both on the center and left of the Israeli spectrum. So, 
Jabotinsky, the figure that emerged, is a more complex individual than I think he's described today. And he was clearly a key figure in the founding of Zionism. And Hillel Halkin has brought him to life in his illuminating remarks. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listened to all of season four and all previous seasons as well. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock, as well as our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Radacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all. <laughs>